It's Mark chapter 13 and reading from verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth, of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infant in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be failing from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. 
as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. We have a couple of weeks looking at Mark 13. It's great to have that time. It's a wonderful chapter to be looking at, but it's not uh, not the most straightforward speech that Jesus ever gave. It's not his his most straightforward teaching. A lot of ink um, has been spilled on quite what he was talking about. And so as we begin to look at this, we need to get our bearings. We need to, in some ways, crack the the approach to it first. What's the the big idea here? What is Jesus really talking about? And um, I think, I'll explain why I think this, but I think the answer is that he's looking forward into the future and he's trying to tell his disciples what they should expect. He's trying to tell them what they should expect, what the the normal Christian life, if you like, will look like. Um, When um, my wife was pregnant with our little girl, uh, we bought some books about what that would be like, and one of the ones that people recommend, I bet a number of you um, have, if you've had uh, pregnancies lately, might have this one. It's called What to Expect When You're Expecting. Um, a few nods, it's a, it's a popular one. And one of the reasons that this book is so helpful is that it tells you what to expect. And so you can look up all the, the, the kind of mad things that are happening, and the book says, oh no, yeah, heartburn, that's normal. Feeling really sick, that's normal. Heartburn, that's normal. Um, lots of other things. And it says, that's normal. And, you know, those things are still hard, um, says he, having watched from the sidelines. Um, but it it is reassuring, having been told by experts, that that, okay, no, no, that's how it's meant to be. Because if you didn't know that, then not only do you have the pain of all these different things, but also the worry of, oh, I wonder if something's gone wrong. Well, that's what Mark 13, I think, is meant to do for us as Christians. Mark's original readers were in the early church, possibly in, in Rome, and you know they were having a really hard time. They faced legal pressure physical danger, real persecution. And they didn't have all the years of Christian history that we have to look back on. They didn't necessarily know that that was normal. As far as they were concerned, they had put their faith in Christ, the Lord of Lords, the victorious ruling king, and yet they're taking a real beating for standing for him in Rome. And maybe something's gone wrong, and we can understand how people in that position would have worried. And so a chapter like this saying to them, no, no, it's okay, This is how 
Jesus always said it was going to be. If you look at verse 23, I think that's a really helpful verse for helping us to understand this, this big idea. Jesus is saying, look, I have told you all things beforehand. Do you see that? He's warning them how it's going to be so that when these trials arise, they are not rocked by the thought that something abnormal or unusual is happening. Jesus says, see, I have told you all things beforehand. And that's big reassurance for them, the first readers, but also for us. Also for us. It it does seem to me, in my experience, in talking to other people, that often we worry that our Christian life, our Christian experience, is not all that it should be. That it's harder than it should be, or we struggle more than we ought to. But Mark 13 is here to say, well, no, weakness is normal. Weakness is normal. And actually, weakness is powerful. That's what we'll see as we look at this great uh, passage. Weakness is normal. A weakness can be powerful. And so the purpose of this is to keep us going. That as those early Christians, as they face hard times, he's saying, no, no, endure. It's just normal what you're going through. I know it's hard, but it's not unpredicted. So keep going. And that's what it's saying to us as well. We are, we are forewarned and so forearmed. Now, I'm just saying this. Uh, why, is, why, why is this true? Why is this uh, the purpose, the original intent of Mark 13? Well, to, to understand why I think that this is a kind of look forward into the future for the good of the disciples, when you think about how this fits into the flow of Mark, we've been looking at um, Mark from chapter 11, and you just look back and especially if you've been here, um, just glance at some of the events. It's been very fevered and fast-paced. Mark is a fast-paced writer. You notice that a lot of the paragraphs, they begin with and, which um, I was taught at school was was bad. But Mark has a, a sense of pace, and this, and this, and this, and the narrative moves forward. And in Mark 11 and 12, there's been a real atmosphere of foreboding and threat and danger. So chapter 12, verse 12, gives us a good flavor of that. Jesus has just told a parable about how the religious establishment, um, they reject God's messengers and they're going to reject him and they're going to actually murder him. And chapter 12, verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. That's what we've seen. This guy, Jesus, he's come into the city. It's crowded with people, pilgrims for the Passover festival. So there's a real kind of atmosphere in the town and he's, he's, he's um, attacked, really, the religious establishment. He clears the temple, throws everybody out, says, this is offending God, what's going on here in the temple? And then he gets into a series of arguments as they try to trap him in his words. And they want to arrest him. They want to get him out of the way. And eventually, as the story goes on in Mark 14 and 15, when it's fast-paced again, they arrange a paid informant. He's arrested at night. He's put on trial. He's executed. It all happens very quickly. Um, But in the middle of that... Before we get into, from the the fast pace, the building of the tension, into the release of it in chapter 14, before we get, there's a pause in the middle. And we have Mark 13. And if you notice in Mark 13, nothing happens. Nothing happens. It's one long speech from Jesus. 
And that's actually quite unusual in Mark. Like I was saying, his style is to keep the pace of the narrative up. But in, in chapter 13, he stops. And nothing happens, and it's just one long speech. And there's only one other place in the gospel where that happens, which is chapter 4, um, if, if you're familiar with Mark, where there's, there's a long pause. In Luke and Matthew and John, they have a lot of long sections of teaching from Jesus. But Mark doesn't have that, only two, only chapter 4 and chapter 13. And so what we find when we look at those chapters that stop and pause, there's all the frenetic events of Jesus' early ministry and then the end of his life. There's a pause. And what both of those chapters do is they kind of zoom out, if you like. They they zoom out from the immediate events that are taking place and show us a bit bit of the bigger picture. They zoom out and they show us what life will be like beyond the immediate events of Jesus' life on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. So it's clear in Mark that um, the Lord Jesus was training, preparing his disciples for a mission that he would have for them. And Mark 4 and Mark 13 kind of zoom out and they look forward and they they speak about that mission. When the disciples, if you look at uh, chapter 13, verse 10, the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. It's going to, it starts with the book of Acts and has been going from then. It's looking at that time, after the cross, after the resurrection, which is our time, isn't it? It's after the cross, after the resurrection, as the gospel goes out, and yet there is also all this persecution and all the hard things that Jesus talks about. So that's, that's why I think we can approach Mark 13 in this way. It's a pause in the fast-paced story, and Jesus zooms out, and he's showing his disciples what to expect from the Christian life, what to expect from this age in which we live. Wonderful things, the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth, but also really, really hard things as Christians have a hard time and live lives of weakness. Now what we're going to... Um, just have a go at uh, quite briefly this week it is just to walk through the whole chapter because it's I found it as I read it for the first time quite confusing so we're just going to walk through it bit by bit and see what Jesus is saying and then at the end at the end of uh, our time this evening we're going to have two very quick practical lessons that hopefully we can take home um, as I said a lot of ink has been spilled about the chapter it, it's something that um, theologians and commentators um, argue about, and we will have to look at some of the complexities, but hopefully at the end there, we'll get to two really uh, simple, substantial things that we can feed on tonight in our Christian lives and take home with us into the week that lies ahead. So first, the walkthrough. Uh, you can see it. I've put the five steps, if you like, on the on the service sheet um, I'll try to be as simple and brief as possible. Um, It starts at the beginning in verses 1 and 2 where Jesus says that an end is coming. Okay, So he's had all these arguments with the religious leaders that they're they're leaving the city. And as he comes out, one of his his disciples looks back at the temple. Apparently it's a vast building, huge. And he makes a comment, what a wonderful building, how magnificent. And Jesus says, it's all coming down. Every last stone, it's all coming down. There will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It's a promise of judgment. And if you remember the content of chapters 11 and 12, that makes sense. If you remember the the kind of metaphor, the acted parable of the fig tree in chapter 11, it was a leafy fig tree, but no fruit. 
And that's the same as what Jesus found in the temple. They had all the trappings of religion, the signs of life, but no fruits. The people had no heart for God. It was all hypocrisy. And so he pronounced a curse and the fig tree withered. Well, that's what he's saying here. He is saying that a judgment will come. Uh, There is an end coming. And he is talking about the temple. Um, If you look at those first couple of verses in Mark 13, you can see Mark kind of shoves our our noses in that fact that it's about the temple. So verse 1, and as they um, were leaving the temple, and then in verse 3, they sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So they're talking about the temple, and Jesus is saying that that an end is coming on the temple and on its, its buildings, its inhabitants, and its practices. And sure enough, in 70 AD, so a few years later, after these events, that's exactly what happened. The Romans, for various reasons, laid siege to Jerusalem. They wrecked the temple, and they drove out the people. And um, that, that, that explains, if you look at verse 14, Jesus makes a comment about those who are in Judea, fleeing to the mountains. And as he speaks about the end here, he clearly has in mind events in that particular location. And also at that particular time. So there are a few things, a few points, like if you look at verse 30 over the page, where Jesus says that this end that he's talking about will take place in the lifetime of his listeners. So Jesus is talking about the end of the temple. But in Mark 13, he's, you also get a sense that he's talking about a bigger end. Um, something that is not localized in Judea and not localized at that time, but something bigger. So please could you look at verse 24 and follow that with me. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man. It's Jesus' way of referring to himself. And they will see the Son of Man um, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, that sounds like more than just the end of the temple, doesn't it? That sounds like the end of the world. And so it is. So Jesus is talking about the very end, the final day when God will judge not just Jerusalem, but the whole world. And in contrast to the end of the temple in verse 30, when Jesus was able to say, you and your generation, your lifetime will see those things. Verse 32, no one knows when that end end, the final end, will come. And that's a big part of the reason why this chapter is a bit confusing, because Jesus speaks about two ends, two end points, the end of the temple and the end of the world, and he, he kind of blends together what he says about those two things. Okay, so getting back on track, after Jesus says that an end is coming, but in this slightly, slightly confusing, layered way, He also talks about what will happen in advance of that, before the end. And what he says is that the gospel will be preached to all nations and that the Holy Spirit will help Christians to speak when the heat is really on them. And so the gospel will go forward, but in what kind of a context? And overall, uh, as we look at the next bit, verses 3 to 13, it's pretty sober. 
And Jesus says that before the end, there will be turmoil, persecution, and um, false teaching, and deception. So initially, this comes in response to a question from Peter. It's quite fair. Peter says, look, if the end is coming, when, when will it be? How will we know that these things are about to take place? But rather than giving him a comprehensive answer, Jesus speaks about these three signs that will show him and us that the end will one day come. You can see the signs as you look at the paragraph there. He talks about wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes. He talks about uh, people speaking falsely in the name of the Lord Jesus and misleading people. Now, um, sometimes people say that these signs are there to show us that the end is right about to happen. But I think that's not quite right. If you have a look at verse 7, Jesus says this must take place, but the end is not yet. Or verse 8, these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. So you can picture it like you're driving down the motorway, and, and these signs these signs are not saying, next exit for Judgment Day. Instead, they say, judgment really is coming in the future. We don't know when, but that is where this road is heading. Does that make sense? They're that kind of sign. But then after that, in verses 14 to 27, Jesus does seem to be a little bit more specific. There will be a, a particularly dreadful sign. He refers to it rather cryptically there as the abomination of desolation. And when this appears, uh, that will be the, the, the harbinger, the, the sign of an intensified period of suffering. And if you look at those verses, you can see it's, it's all the same stuff that Jesus is talking about. It's the turmoil and the persecution and the deception, but they're all ramped up a bit. So instead of just false teaching, you have people doing false miracles. Instead of people uh, being arrested and betrayed by their families, you have this very extreme language call, saying people to run for the hills, run for the hills. And if you're out on your flat Palestinian roof, then you better take the outside staircase. You better go down the fire escape. You don't even have time to go back inside for your jacket. You've got to get out of there. And instead of earthquakes, the whole heavens will be shaken, says Jesus. The stars falling down, the sun and moon will both be darkened. And then at the end of that intensified period, says Jesus, he himself will come in glory, and that will be the end. And then in the two final paragraphs of the chapter, he, he, he pulls the threads together. So first of all, Jesus says that because, these, uh, because of these signs, we can know that the end will come. Because of these signs, we can know that the end will come. It's like um, the springtime. I just think it's easier to diagnose the beginning of spring than the beginning of summer in Scotland. You can go to the meadows, you can see the crocuses, and they're lovely, and you know that the time is coming for spring. That's what he's saying here. You see the signs, you know, don't know when, you don't know exactly when, but you know that it's on its way, it really is on its way. But then the final paragraph, we don't know when, and therefore we need to stay awake. We need to keep on living in the light of the end that will certainly come, and which might come at any time. And perhaps, perhaps the clearest bit for us is the, 
the metaphor or illustration that Jesus gives in that last paragraph where he says it's like a master who goes away from the house and leaves his servants about their business, about their work. And they don't know when he's going to come. And so the, the only uh, advisable strategy for work under those conditions is to crack on. Because you don't know when he's going to come and you don't want him to catch him you don't want him to come home and find you asleep or playing Angry Birds. You need to be working when he comes, and so you need to keep at it. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. We don't know when, and therefore we need to stay awake. We need to live with that day in view and keep our wits about us. That's Mark 13. Um, it's not that easy to understand, and, and I can only apologize if that little um, run through it hasn't yet made everything completely clear. It's, I was thinking it's, um, well, it's good for you, uh, perhaps, bad for me. It's a good passage to have before a Q&A, um, although I'm not sure I'll have the A's if you have, even if you have lots of Q's. But, um, but so I'm sorry if that's not totally clear. Um, I think that's, that's kind of how it is with Jesus. I don't think that's an accident as he talks about these things in the future. He's not trying to give us all the details, and I think it's, it's unhelpful, unhealthy when Christians try to kind of pin things down a lot because that's really not how Jesus speaks about these things. And yet there are some things in here that are very clear. And so just as we finish, let me, uh, let me make these, these couple of applications um, in the light of what... Um, in a lot of what Jesus has said. So first, the kingdom that started in weakness will end in triumph. Just thinking about the big things that this chapter says to the disciples as they face the future, as they think about their future mission, and as we think about life and what, what life is like for Christians now. The kingdom that started in weakness will end in triumph. It's one of the big surprises in Mark that the kingdom of God and his ruler, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the ruler, the king, is weak. He comes in weakness. So if you, if you remember Mark 4, if, you, if you're familiar with that, think about the parables that Jesus says the kingdom is like a tiny seed. It doesn't look strong. It doesn't sweep all before it. It's like a tiny seed that grows Think of Jesus' own ministry, humble, lowly, opposed. Just a few followers. Think about what happens at the end of the story as Jesus is arrested, humiliated, crucified. The kingdom, the rule of God in our world, starts in weakness. But it will end in triumph. Look again at verses 24 to 27, please. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. It's a phrase that he, he borrowed from the Old Testament, where the Son of Man is one who will rule the world for God forever. The one who receives uh, a crown from God the Father and receives global, eternal adoration Jesus is saying he came in weakness, but when he comes again at the end, he will come as that son of man. If you flick on just one page, I think, to chapter 14, verse 60, I think this really sums up the punch of Mark 13 that I'm trying to get us to. 
Jesus is on trial here. He, he's, uh, you know, on the ropes. He's fighting for his life in one sense. Uh, 14 verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men say against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, the man on trial in the dock, having been arrested by an armed mob, he says, I am And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The kingdom that started in weakness will end in triumph. Now think about how that would have helped Mark's original Roman readers as they faced, as I said, legal pressure, social pressure, physical danger. You have to be brave sometimes to be a Christian And the kind of truth that Mark 13 contains is what will make us brave if we're Christians here tonight. Mark 13 is saying that no matter what happens, no matter how things look, we are on the winning side. And it's saying that, therefore, a Christian is no fool to give up what he is unable to keep in order to gain what he can't lose. There is real sacrifice in being a Christian, but not in the end, not in the end. And so we need to think ahead to that day when Jesus will return in glory and the kingdom that started in weakness will end in triumph. Now, is that a challenge or a comfort? I don't know for us. I expect... Among us, people will hear it in different ways. It'll be an enormous, uh, an enormous comfort from Jesus if we feel like we're on the ropes for being a Christian and we feel like the cost is very high at the moment and we feel like we're in danger because of following Jesus. We're in danger of missing out on things that would be precious to us. Jesus says, well, look ahead. Look ahead. Think of that day when the Son of Man returns in glory and be comforted. For others of us, though, I guess it is a challenge. You know, if we're, and it does happen, it happens to, to the best of us, we, we get tired of focusing on the kingdom and of prioritizing the advance of the gospel we get sick of sticking out and being different. We want to fit in. We, we don't want to speak to other people about Jesus. Well, for us, that's a challenge because the kingdom is coming in triumph. We need to try to live now with that day in view because a lot of the things that we really value now and we're afraid of now and the things that motivate us now won't matter at all on that final day of triumph that is coming. And so the challenge is that it's foolish to prioritize short-term things 
you know, in the language of Jesus in the parable there, having a snooze. It's foolish to prioritize that, the short-term things, when the master could come back at any minute. And when he does, things will be completely different. That's why he wants us to be about his business, working away, conscious of the possibility of his return, throwing ourselves into the work of verse 10. For the joy of that day, for the joy of that day when he returns in triumph and we are found at last to be on the winning side with him and the joy of having helped many, many others, not just ourselves, but having helped as many as we could also to be ready for that day when it comes. So it's a challenge and a comfort for us that the kingdom that started in weakness will end in triumph. Then secondly, the second application as we finish, that the kingdom that will end in triumph continues in weakness. As I was saying, it's really easy for Christians for us to worry that our experience of life following Jesus is not as great as it's somehow meant to be. You know, we, we wish we would sail through life, but we don't. We wish that the gospel would sweep all before it, but it doesn't. And it's hard. We find that really hard. We look out on the state of the world or the state of the church, and it grieves us. And that's hard. And it becomes really hard when listen to sermons or read the Bible, and it's hard to be told that you're on the winning side when it really doesn't feel like that. But Mark 13 is here to help us with that. It's here to show us what is normal. And what is normal is turmoil and persecution and deception. And so remember Jesus' words. He says, see, I have told you all things beforehand. This is what's normal. And these things, therefore, that would otherwise make us want to give up when we see the world in turmoil, when we are persecuted, when we see the ravages of false teaching and deception, they want to make us give up. No, sorry, they make us want to give up. But we hear these words of Jesus and we see that these are actually the very signs that he has given that show us that one day judgment will come. But for now, the gospel will go forward through weakness. And so for us, as we hear this this evening, the message is to stay, uh, stay awake and to stay on course, to be ready and to play our part in helping as many others also as we can to be ready for the day of his return. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you haven't hidden your plans from us, but that you have given us these words to show us what the future holds, to explain to us the nature of this age in which we live. And we pray that we would all take from these words the challenge and the comfort that you have for us. Lord, we thank you for the prospect of the return of the Lord Jesus when all that we don't understand and all that hurts us now and grieves us will be swept away in his victory. Lord, help us to hang on for that day. 
that is how we need to hear this passage. Lord, help us also to work for that day, to have in our minds the joy of meeting our master whom we have served with all our hearts. And so this week, we ask for your help to live with that that final day in view, that it would shape us. For your name's sake. Amen.